Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And it's that time of the week where we chat to the guru, uh, Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist. Chris, it's great to chat to you this morning. Oh, likewise, likewise. Good morning. Uh, The questions are already coming through. And let me start with this listener asks, why can a sore throat be bad for your heart? Ah, they're probably referring to the fact that one cause of a sore throat, by far and away not the most common, was much more common historically, but has become thankfully a lot less common, is a bacterial infection, which is caused by the bacterium Streptococcus. And one group of the Streptococci, they're a very big family of bacteria, includes the group A Streptococci, Strep pyogenes. And these bacteria can lead to what we call rheumatic heart disease. And we don't know why, but in some people who catch these infections, the bacteria set up a or, or trigger an immune attack on certain structures in the heart and you get rheumatic fever. And rheumatic fever is where you then get damage to the valves of the heart. And this has a lifelong effect because it causes inflammation that then distorts or damages the valves and this can make them leaky. So you're more likely to have valve problems later. That's one reason. Another reason why a sore throat might be bad for your heart is another family member of the streptococci group, which are the viridans streptococci. And they're low grade. They're not highly pathogenic organisms. But they can, having natural, they, they naturally live in the mouth and the throat. They're part of your oral flora. But they can, for instance, if you have really bad tooth decay or something, they can get into your bloodstream. And if you already have damage to your heart and valves, perhaps because you've got rheumatic heart disease or a history of that, these bacteria can settle into the abnormal tissue in the heart and then cause a condition called endocarditis, which is infection on the tissues of the heart. And this can be life-threatening if it's not treated. So that's two ways in which the kinds of bacteria that can be linked to a sore throat or poor oral health can be linked to a heart problem. Well, people obviously want to talk about germs this morning because Ross in Thornton has a question for you about toilets. Hi, Ross. What's your question? Ah, yes. It's not so much to do with the hygiene, but to do with energy. Because I remember at boarding school, we had these old-fashioned toilets where the cistern was two meters above above the pan. And with new so-called new toilets, you know, the one where the, the cistern is just about half a meter above the pan, the momentum of the water from the old-fashioned toilet would have been so much greater than the new ones. Now, I remember at boarding school that the water came down with such velocity, they just whooped away the poo and uh, was very effective. Yet surely we could then say, because momentum is what? Mass times velocity. Surely we could use less water if we use the old-fashioned system. And instead of trying to think of something very technologically advanced, we could just reintroduce the, new, the old toilets um, in, in place of the new ones. Chris, what's your, 
What's your take on that? I completely agree with Ross, and I've had the same thought myself, that actually there's a benefit, that gravity push that you get from the water coming down the tube and being accelerated on its way down leads to a higher velocity, which does mean probably there's going to be much less water wasted because people will flush fewer times, because one flush does the job. So I'm, I'm completely with him, although... New technology is good, isn't it? And we covered a story on The Naked Scientist a couple of weeks ago, uh, the researchers who have invented a new lining or coating for your toilet bowl, and it uses nano hairs to make the toilet bowl extremely uber slippery, and that makes skid marks a physical impossibility, we are told, and apparently that can translate into a halving of water use in toilets. So perhaps a combination of that with Ross's suggestion to go back to the slightly less aesthetic, because I think there's a lot of this is driven by aesthetics. Nicer to have a sort of built-into-the-wall, space-saving toilet design, which is very compact. Much more difficult to put that big thing up or up near the ceiling and then a tube coming down. Doesn't look so good. I suspect that's why we walked away or moved back away from that sort of design. But coupled with shinier toilets, perhaps a, a reversion to the elevated system, the two things in combination could be a killer combo. It's about the last thing I thought we'd be talking about this morning, but it is fascinating. Let's go to Philip in Zonneblom. Hello, good morning, uh, good morning, Dr. Smith. What's your take on the paranormal and, and aliens? I'll listen on the radio, thanks. Hello, Philip. Well, to be honest, I'm sceptical about the paranormal for the simple reason that, that this defies rational scientific explanation and no one's actually got any decent documentation. There are lots of anecdotal reports, but when people have tried to scrutinise this scientifically, they've never come up trumps. So I strongly suspect that this is a figment of our imaginations. And, you know, as humans, we have evolved to be a bit fearful and everyone loves a good ghost story and these things always improve with the telling. So I think that's probably where that comes from. Aliens is a completely different matter. And I think um, that is an almost certain or inevitable situation, given the scale of the universe. I mean, you think in terms of simple numbers, there's in our Milky Way galaxy something like 100 billion stars. So that's uh, one followed by nine zeros is a billion, and times it by 100 is 11 zeros. And then you've got about 100 billion galaxies like the Milky Way, so that's another one followed by 11 zeros. If you multiply the two together, you've now got one followed by 22 noughts. That's the number of stars out there. And all those stars won't have planets, but a a healthy proportion will. So let's say even half of them did. You've still got more than 22 noughts worth of planets to try that might be like the Earth with conditions like the Earth where life might have evolved. So given the vastness of space, I think it's a numbers game and the likelihood of there being life out there, whether it's intelligent life, more intelligent or less intelligent, is a different question. But the likelihood there is alien life out there, I think, is really, really high. The likelihood they've come here to Earth, well, to be honest, my own view about this is why would they bother? Because if they've conquered space and time in such a way that they can build spacecraft and the ability to see us and get here, why would they bother? Because they could they could see what we are up to without having to go to all the trouble of wasting their time to come here in something as mundane as a flying saucer. I think that they would arrive in far more complicated vehicles than a flying saucer. So I think aliens is an inevitability. Flying saucers is probably more of a myth. Do you think we'll ever advance to the stage where we initiate the encounter? Uh, 
Never say never in science and medicine is the bottom line because you'll always be proved wrong one way or the other. Uh, probably. Um, at one point, we, we, you know, if you look at the leaps that have been made in the last 50 years, we celebrated 50 years since the first moon landings this year, you think what's been achieved in the, in the recent centuries and the pace of change is so incredible. And from 2021, we're going to build something called the Lunar Gateway. The Lunar Gateway is a new project to put a space station in orbit around the moon. And this is a jumping off point for regular forays down onto the moon surface using the moon surface as a supply of materials and minerals to sustain that space station. So that's just a couple of years away that project and space agencies are increasing their budgets for lunar exploration and beyond enormously so we're really beginning to venture out there now i think it's going to be a long time and there are there are big problems to be solved given the vastness of space when you think it's 13.8 billion years the universe has been in existence and it's been growing all the time we can't see a healthy chunk of the universe it's gone over the horizon and in terms of how fast light can travel and the inflation of the universe but at the same time we're an inventive bunch aren't we so never say never i think the likelihood is we're going to do some pretty exciting things given the pace of of change in the last 50 years well back here on earth john uh, has a question and the first question is what is the cause of diabetes one and the other is um what exactly is celiac and is it growing Hello, John. Well, first of all, your diabetes question. Diabetes, the name diabetes, came from Thomas Willis, who was an anatomist a couple hundred years ago, two or three hundred years ago. And he came up with the name diabetes because it actually means a siphon, because his original observation was that people with this condition, in his words, in inverted commas, piss aplenty, because he realised there was this association between people producing prodigious volumes of water And when you test that water, it was very high in sugar. And that was the first description of what we now define as diabetes. Diabetes actually falls into more than one category. There's what we call type 1 diabetes. This is more common in youngsters. We think it's caused by some kind of antecedent infection. And that infection causes the immune system to attack the cells in the pancreas called beta islet cells, which make insulin, and the immune system removes How do you those. Get that infection? Well, it's a natural infection that just circulates, and it seems to come seasonally because we see surges of these infections at certain times of the year. It's probably a very common infection. It's in fact a member of the family of viruses called Coxsackie viruses, and it probably is the combination of that particular infection in in an individual with a predisposition to develop this consequence. So that's why you can have a common infection that most people would shrug off, but in some people it it manifests in this way. And the destruction of the beta islet cells leads to the inability of the pancreas to produce any insulin. So these young people suddenly go from being perfectly normal and healthy to not being able to make any insulin. Therefore, they can't control their blood sugar at all, and their blood sugar goes through the roof and they then get all the consequences of diabetes a second oh and they need to treat that by being injected with insulin because they can't make any insulin they have to put it back and that's where the injections come in the other type of diabetes tends to be called maturity onset diabetes or type 2 diabetes this is the diabetes that tends to be although not exclusively associated with weight gain so it's more common if we gain too much weight and This is not an absence of insulin, it's an inability to produce enough insulin. 
And it's actually a myth that people with this type of diabetes produce small amounts of insulin. Very often they don't. They produce very large amounts of insulin, but their tissues have lost their sensitivity to it. So as a result, you either need to take drugs that make the body more sensitive to your own insulin, you need to regulate your diet, or in some cases actually inject additional insulin to get control of the blood sugar. Type 2 diabetes is in some respects easier to control because there are options available to you like losing weight which can restore some of the uh, ability to get the um, insulin level to be more the the body to become more sensitive to insulin again and there are other possibilities like taking drugs that will sensitize cells to insulin and because you make some insulin it's it's less threatening on a day-to-day basis not in the long term because diabetes is bad for many many tissues in the body but in the short term it's less threatening to you than someone who absolutely is dependent on injecting themselves with insulin because they can't make any the other question was celiac disease celiac disease is a immunological condition where a component of wheat grains which is called gluten in gluten there's a protein called alpha gliadin and in that protein or when, when you encounter that protein you mount an immune response which damages the lining of your small bowel and that damage removes all of these projections called villi microvilli which give the bowel a large surface area and the immune system damages them and wipes them out and the consequence of that is you make the bowel very very smooth on the inside and a smooth surface rather than one which is thrown into many folds has a much lower surface area So the ability to absorb calories and nutrients from the food you eat is impaired and therefore people with this condition tend to present with often anemia and they'll be malnourished and they may also say that when they go to the loo they have a lot of diarrhoea because they're just not absorbing things properly and if they stop eating gluten or foods that contain gluten then there's nothing for the immune system to react to so their bowel recovers and they they can have a perfectly healthy normal life except they mustn't eat gluten. John's indicated there's a li- is there a link between type 1 diabetes and a propensity to celiac disease? Well, they are both immune conditions, but there are lots and lots of people who have type 1 diabetes who don't have celiac and vice versa. In fact, the hotspot around the world for people getting celiac disease is one part of Ireland, Galway in Ireland. And so if you see someone who presents with weight loss and anemia and the complaints I've been mentioning and they're from that part of the world it's the first thing you think of until you've excluded it. And this is because there is a genetic predisposition towards celiac disease and the genes, which are part of the way the immune system recognises and presents foreign things to itself, those genes are more common in people from that part of the world. If listeners are just tuning in, we are, of course, talking to the naked scientist, Dr. Chris Smith. Send your questions in uh, on the WhatsApp line 0725671567. And Chris Anonymous asks, my husband's 53. He's a big build. He's got a slight hypothyroid problem, slight hypertension. He yawns a lot. Um, It could be a couple of times every 20 minutes as soon as the sun sets every evening. What kind of medical doctor should he be consulting? Well, yawning isn't isn't in and of itself a bad thing. It can be a sign that you're not sleeping properly, though. Now, if you're big build, this person said they're big build. It could be actually that this person's not sleeping very well. And when we gain weight and go to sleep, because you've got extra weight clinging around your upper airway, this can cause the soft palate to flop back, and the loss of muscle tone with weighty tissue causes the airway to 
prematurely close when you're trying to breathe at night. And this is called obstructive sleep apnea. And this can cause people to become deficient in oxygen at night, which then leads to them waking up, coughing, clearing their airway and going back to sleep again. So they never establish a clean, healthy pattern of sleep through the night. So their sleep is less restorative than someone who isn't having this problem. And this can lead to people feeling fatigued and tired and lacking in concentration during the day. So I would suggest that a, a person who's a sleep specialist would be the, f- the first place to start here to see if this is happening in this person. And it, it will be relatively easy to fix, potentially. There are some quite simple ways to fix this if this is what's happening. Right, and from sleep to the roads, because Rick wants to know what causes dirt roads to become corrugated and will electric cars stop the cause of this forming? Ah, hi, Rick. This is a classic one, isn't it? You know, driving around in Australia, um, when I I did a big road trip, I took myself across the desert about six years ago or so, um, from Broome in the top northwest to Darwin. And right across all those dirt roads, you're going along and then suddenly there are these things that will literally shake the vehicle to pieces. And you think, wow, they must be really hard. And then you get out of the car to have a look at these corrugations and they're just piles of sand. And you think, well, where did they come from and how did they get formed? And the answer is it's the shock absorbers on vehicles going along the road that makes them. What happens is that you'll get some little bit of perturbation of the road surface which starts a vehicle bouncing up and down because the shock absorbers slowly turn up and down bouncing movement into a series of slow rhythmic movements which slowly lose energy and mean that you're not bouncing so hard but because they do that with a cycle once the process starts it means that the next time the car is going along a bit further it's on the way down and when it's going on the way down it's pushing more dirt ahead of the wheel and so slowly over time you will build up a a bump and then that will start the vehicle bouncing and then because it's bouncing with a certain period of the shock absorber it will then produce another bump and another bump and another bump and because this then is hit by more vehicles coming along behind those bumps will grow because the vehicles are pretty much all the same size and they've got all the same shock absorbers so you build this succession of of bumps of of dirt and dust and sand on the ground which then become absolutely huge and Actually, the way to solve this problem is to drive at a speed which means that when you hit them or when you go over them, that your car resonates at a different rate to the bumps. And if you therefore, it seems paradoxical, but if you speed up a little bit when you're going over these things, you'll notice that the effect goes away because now your car is bouncing at a, and, and hitting them at the wrong time. Your car is going up and down out of phase with the bumps. And it seems paradoxical, but driving a little bit faster will actually mean they're less a high impact and driving slower can actually make them feel worse for you. Give it a go. It always goes too fast. Dr. Chris Smith, Naked Scientist, I'm sorry we didn't get to all the questions, but it's fantastic talking to you this morning. Well, likewise. Happy Christmas. And I can't believe the time has gone by already, but didn't that go fast? (laughs) Happy, happy Christmas. Enjoy the break. And you. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.